Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time where we can gather under your command. Lord, we come humbly to your word, and I pray, God, that we would be open to receive truth from your scripture and that the Holy Spirit, you would teach us and you would show us how we are to apply this story from the book of Ezra. I thank you, God, that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable, that Second Peter chapter 1 says that the prophetic word, the word that was written by the apostles as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, that this word is a more sure word than any other vision or any other words that are spoken, any other words that have been written, Lord, pale in comparison to the more sure word that we have in the revelation before us. So God, we reverence your truth and we revel in the opportunity to learn at your feet. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Ezra chapter 4. Ezra chapter 4 is where the text takes us and we find ourselves in a story about a group of people, 50,000 exiles in particular, who are tasked and who are directed and moved by God to reestablish and reconstitute worship in Jerusalem. This happened a long time ago, millennia and millennia ago, in a distant land from where we live in Jerusalem, but the meaning of what they were doing and re-establishing and what they were warfare, um, warfare moved to do is significant because they were coming out of obscurity, out into the open, and planting a flag for the glory of God. It's hopefully what we are as a church, even here in Anchorage, in our church community. We, along with other truth-bearing churches, are planting a flag to say truth matters, God's glory matters, and we're unashamed of the gospel. Well, as with any story, any classic story, any classic literature, you have your protagonists, you have your heroes, and then you have your antagonists. Well, in the beginning of chapter 4, in this story, you have the introduction of the antagonists, the enemies. They are called in verse 1 of chapter 4, adversaries. And when you have adversaries, that means something. That means that you are at war. And I just want to sort of introduce chapter 4 again to us with the idea that this is a warfare chapter. This is a chapter that will span in a fast-forward way over a hundred years of history to make the point that these precious children of God were in a warfare mode battling to display the glory of of God. And I want to remind all of us that as we traversed through the narrow gates, we were enlisted and drafted into a war, a battle. Not just a battle where we're battling our own flesh and sin because we've become aware of it, but we were introduced into a battle where we are not fighting against flesh and blood, but world dark forces, principalities 
who war against our souls, who want to sideline you and me spiritually where we are rendered ineffective in the kingdom battle for the glory of God. Now, we're fighting a warfare where we know who wins in the end, right? God always wins. And Christ won the victory for us at Golgotha 2,000 years ago. And yet at the same time, with that knowledge, we are in a battle right now. For the souls of men and for the glory of God, we are called to battle. There is no neutral ground in this. We are not sort of able to step out of the battle and draft dodge this battle because you're either on one side or the other. The Bible says that before you become a Christian, you are born in sin. You're a child of the devil at enmity with God. And that is bad news for those of you who might be on that side. But for the church, we are on God's side and we're on the victor's side. And we are battling against the world, the flesh, and the devil. There's no middle ground. There, uh, Satan wants you to believe that there's a middle ground, that you're not on his side. He wants you to be lulled asleep. He wants you to sort of breathe in sort of the, the chemical warfare gas of the world and be lulled to sleep where you're rendered ineffective. But really, we are warriors for Christ. And this is all apparent in what Ezra, who I believe is the author here, is displaying in a historical snapshot of warfare that's going on in Jerusalem against the people of God. Now let me say, I, I sort of looked at the theme of warfare a little bit online this week and saw two uh, sort of opposite warfare strategies, one that shows up in the text. There, there's sort of two kind of opposing strategies when you're trying to defeat an enemy. One is called maneuver warfare. This sort of would be like desert storm warfare where you, you try to take out the capital city and you maneuver behind enemy lines and take out the enemy in stealth with a strike sort of uh, method. A lot of times it's, uh, you know, the, the less famous war that happens more quickly where you're taking out the enemy in a quick fashion. The opposite strategy would be what is more popularly known and, and sort of common in warfare, and that is called attrition warfare. This is warfare that, that is produced from one side where they are trying to outman, out sort of outpopulate and suffocate the enemy through a war of attrition where you outlast the enemy over a long period of time. It's kind of like what the North did to the South in the Civil War, having more, more resources, more people to outlast the South and ultimately claim victory. In World War II, the, World War I rather, the Allies, they, they created what was called trench warfare where they would dig in and create a, a defense that ultimately outlasted the enemy through the attrition of the offense not being able to go past the trenches. Trench warfare is kind of a synonym for attrition warfare. Well, let me just tell you this. Satan is all about attrition Warfare. Now, yes, he will do things at times where we might look, uh, look on and say, you know, that had to be satanic. That had to be something the devil was up to, something that he sort of exploded in, in our midst where we say, wow, that, that was the devil. But by and large, he is all about attrition warfare, trying to wear down 
church, the church. He's trying to cause the church to fall into a deep discouragement where the church begins to believe, or you individually begin to believe, that you are ineffective in the kingdom fight. Where you just begin to throw your hands up and say, I can't find encouragement anywhere because Satan seems to be suffocating me at every turn. Well, that's the strategy that we find ourselves um, seeing throughout the rest of Ezra chapter 4. And I want us to answer relentless spiritual warfare in three ways. We're going to look at the first two this morning. And the first way is to recognize that you will always be at war. You'll always be at war. We see this kind of in the way that this chapter is broken down. Verses 1 through 4 is talking about the time of Cyrus and Darius, two Persian leaders who were, who, remember Cyrus had sent the exiles from Babylonia 900 miles to the city of Zion in Jerusalem to reestablish the temple. And then in the midst of that, you had some adversaries who were the Samaritans who come to the front door with smiling faces, kind of like your, your salesmen or, or sort of false teachers that come to the front door and they smile and say, hey, can we join you in the work? Can we help you build? And scripture is clear that the leaders, Zerubbabel and Joshua, they discerned it right to say, no, thank you. We are on God's team, and we're part of God's army, and so we don't want you to be part of the building project. And so they discerned rightly to push back on these adversaries. But these adversaries, they went over the heads of Joshua and Zerubbabel when they found no traction with their first strategy. Again, this is attrition warfare, so they're going over the heads. So they go, and they, they first discourage the people. They stop the work, but the warfare goes on in the form of three letters, three letters. And these letters are, are letters that span the history of 100 years. And I don't want you to be confused in this text because it's really not uh, a text that is, that is precisely chronological. And it's really a text that's fast forwarding through 100 years of time to make a point. Verses 6 through 23 in this chapter is a parenthesis, where you've started with Cyrus and Darius, and now verses 6 through 23 is going to talk about the rule of, of Ahasuerus and the rule of Artaxerxes I to capture a big, big snapshot of time to make a big, big point. And the point is this. That through correspondence and through letters where these adversaries are launching these letters against God's people over a hundred years of time. This is attrition warfare. And guess what? God's people have to be in it for the long haul because you're always going to be at war until glory. That's the point. It's very sobering. When Jesus called you to put your hands to the plow and not look back, he was calling you into service. He was calling you into a battle where you can glorify God even in sober circumstances, difficult circumstances. And that's what this author wants to point out. Just like how our world has always been at war. We're always in battle somewhere. Nations are battling nations somewhere in the world at all times. The case can be made that for the last 50 years, we've been at war. I mean, there are wars upon wars that are always happening because of the fall of man 
and because of man's depravity. It's just a true fact. And spiritually speaking, it's true as well, right? Even from the dawning of creation, as soon as God created the angels in heaven, you have one premier angels that, angel that tries to oppose God. That's Satan himself. He's cast down, and a third of his angels are cast with him down to the earth. He comes down, and he makes battle against mankind, Adam and Eve, and ultimately plunges the human race into sin. And then after that, the war continues on. Cain kills his brother Abel. And then after that, you have people's sin getting so vicious and horrible and multiplied around the world that God against mankind washes mankind away in the flood. And then after that, the world repopulates and the Tower of Babel is built. And in pride, they want to supersede God by building this tower. And God has none of that and disperses the people all over the world, creating um, a multiplied language around the world, multi-languages, multi-nations. And then after that, you have Israel that's captured by Pharaoh, and Pharaoh becomes, and Egypt becomes the enemy of God, and God overthrows that. Then the nation of Israel is established, and enemies are coming after the nation of Israel throughout Old Testament history, and we find ourselves there even at this point. And then you have Jesus Christ who comes on the scene, and Herod tried to slay him. There's battle that's going on. Jesus against the Pharisees. Jesus at the cross against Satan crushes his head, defeats him, and raises on the third day. Then the church is born under the Holy Spirit. Warfare goes on at that point. You have the Sanhedrin trying to undo and destroy the church. Churches multiply out from that. Wherever there's growth, there's going to be warfare, right? That's the theme of Acts. And then from that, you have Paul who's being opposed by false teachers, trying to undermine him and his message. And then today we live in warfare in the church age. Now we will live in warfare in the church age in the future as Revelation documents ultimately until Satan himself is slain by fire, destroyed with his enemies in the millennial kingdom as Revelation chapter 21 or 20 documents for us. He will be cast into the lake of fire forever and ever. So until glory, we are at war. And that's what this author is showing us. And you say, well, why do we need this in our lives? Why do we need to understand this? Well, because we need to be sobered up. We need to come to our Christian lives soberly. And it helps me at some level to understand that life is going to be difficult and hard. And the Bible gives some clarity as to why it's hard. Doesn't it help you? Well, it helps me. It helps me to understand that I'm not only fighting my flesh, but I'm also in for a battle that will come to me that comes in all kinds of forms and fashions, all kinds of messages, all kinds of forms of discouragement, all kinds of ways that, that my spiritual life is being attacked. And it helps to understand that because we need to be in it for the long haul, battling through to the end. It's attrition warfare. And I want us to see this attrition warfare played out with three different attacks 
three different letters actually that were sent. You know, it's kind of the old adage, the pen is mightier than the sword at this point. And this is a warfare of correspondence against the people of God. Look at verse 6. Here's your first letter that's sent. And it says, in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. Now again, you have adversaries. You have enemies. These are the Samaritans that were the neighbors to Jerusalem, the southern uh, city and the southern kingdom where the temple was being built. It was during the time of the book of Esther. That's the, the leader here, Ahasuerus, tells us that. He was uh, the Greek word Xerxes in the book of Esther. Esther is happening chronologically between chapters 6 and 7 in the book of Ezra. All of this Old Testament history hangs together. And so you have Ahasuerus who's on the scene, and accusations are made to him against God's people. The timing of this historically is a little bit interesting to note because after the reigns of Cyrus and Darius, when Darius died or moved on and you have a new emperor in town, the Egyptians, who are the neighbors just south of Jerusalem, tried to take advantage of that moment of vulnerability and they actually marched against the kingdom of Persia, probably to take over the regions just west of the Euphrates. And Xerxes had to push Egypt back down home. And during that time is when these adversaries from Samaria wanted to also blame the Jews for that attack. And so undoubtedly that this letter came at a perfect strategic time to again step on the air hose of God's progression of glory with the building of the temple. Well, that's the first letter. The second letter is verse 7. It says, In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithridath and Tabael and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Well, there's nothing told to us about the first and second letter in terms of the content. But again, I bring up verse 7 just to say that you have a new leader in in power. So things have fast forwarded a little bit since Ahasuerus. We're looking future. He's the king of Persia, and this is a letter that's written in the lingua franca of the day, the common language, something easily understood where these Samaritans are trying to set up a defeat against the Jews. And the Jews, again, they're just 50,000 people trying to build a temple. What's the big deal? Well, just think about it comparatively to the church. Why does, why does the world try to stamp out the effectiveness of the, tr the church? Because one reason, we're, we're the conscience of God here on earth. The world wants to stamp out the glory of God because the glory of God pricks the conscience of the world. And it exposes the sins of the world. We are the light of the world. We're, we're the salt and light here. And that's why these attacks come. And you can see that, you know, verse 6, that first letter that was written, that word accusation is prominent there. Who is called the accuser? None other than Satan himself, Revelation chapter 12, who accuses the church day and night. 
he was accusing actually Joshua during this time specifically in heaven. You can read about it in Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah was one of the prophets on hand during this time along with his colleague Haggai and they're prophesying against the enemies and spurring the people of God on during this time to keep going, to keep building. And we're going to see that next week in Ezra chapter 5. But Zechariah, if we were to look there in Zechariah 3, actually sees a vision in heaven where Joshua, this key leader, is standing before the throne of God and Satan is right there alongside him, accusing him, trying to undo Joshua's spiritual integrity, undoing as a representative the integrity of Israel before the throne of God, which is laughable, right? Because God is on God's people's side, right? He's on our side. And so in Zechariah 3, the Lord calls the angel of the Lord, probably Christ himself, to come and robe Joshua in righteousness. Well, he, Satan's always been the accuser. This is a satanic attack, both under Ahasuerus and then Artaxerxes I. Artaxerxes is the leader, um, the emperor of Persia, who's going to be the leader throughout the duration here. There was an Artaxerxes you know, first, second, and third. This is Artaxerxes I, and he's going to be the leader spanning into the book of Nehemiah. Artaxerxes is the leader when Ezra himself leads the second wave of exiles back down into Jerusalem. And that all picks up in Ezra chapter 7. Just important to know to try to keep your arms around this book so you can see the main points that are going on. Well, verse, verse 8 begins what is the preamble of the third letter. And actually, this third letter is what we have captured in verses 11 through 16. We have a window into a letter that was written in Aramaic by God's enemy that is sent to Artaxerxes to delay the work of God. Look at verse 8. It says, Rahum, the commander... And Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rahum, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susi, that is, Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Asnapar departed, deported, excuse me, and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. It's important for you to understand that this letter is written in an atmosphere of pride. And at this point in our study in Ezra chapter 4 with this third letter, I want you to see something that sort of surprised me from the text, and that is that as you sort of lift, lift um, a layer of the story and look beneath the surface, you can see a real study on human pride. In other words, this is a study on what you don't want to be like. You don't want to be like this commander Rahum, and you don't want to be like Artaxerxes I, because they are filled with pride, and pride is distorting their perspectives. Pride is causing each of them on either side of this correspondence to fall into fear and irrational behavior. The people of God were not a 
physical threat in any way whatsoever. They are, again, the political backwater of what's going on compared to all of Persia and former Babylonia. I mean, you have this sort of superpower world that's overarching all that's going on politically, and then you have this tiny little remnant group that's building this tiny little temple in tiny little Jerusalem in the southern kingdom. And somehow all of this gets ramped up and becomes sort of a wildfire scene of reactionary behavior, all because it's rooted in pride. Pride. This is a study on pride. First of all, let's look at Rahum's pride here. He's doing in verse uh, 8 a roll call of all the leaders that are around him, the associates. He's in Samaria. He's 900 miles away next to Jerusalem saying, look, we're down here and, and we're in control of all of your kingdom down here and it's being Threatened. He, Rahum obviously is a, an officer or an official, a governing official who carries some street credibility to be able to get the attention of Artaxerxes. He says in verse 10 that the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Asnapar deported and settled in the cities of Samaria. He's saying, look, we are in charge of all that is west of the Euphrates. We are large and in charge down here, all for your glory, Artaxerxes. You see the pride behind that? He's saying, look, we are the overwhelming majority down here by numbers, by population, by resources. Again, that warfare of attrition. We're the strong people here. We deserve to be large and in charge down here. And this decree, it really, it's minuscule right now, but it needs to be snuffed out. Um, this building project needs to stop. Because of who we are. He's flexing his, his official muscles at this point. And he's marginalizing the Jews. Just like the world at times will marginalize the church. I mean, even though in our society we are pretty comfortable as the church, as one of the free practicing religions, as soon as you begin to narrow the scope of church and say, listen, we are not inclusivists, we are exclusivists. We, we are people who say there is one way to heaven. There is no other name given under man but Jesus Christ where people can be saved. As soon as you start to go there, it, it begins to paint a crosshair on your back. When you begin to say, listen, we are going to plant a flag for the glory of God and we are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As soon as you start to go there like this remnant group was doing, it creates some turbulence. It creates some warfare. And I'm not looking for more warfare in my life, but I am looking to fight the battle the way that God intends me to fight it. Fighting the good fight of faith. And trust in God, no matter what the cost or the circumstances bring. Well, again, they were marginalizing the church. He was trying to prop up this leader who had deported the Samaritans there, the last Assyrian great leader in verse 10. He calls him great and noble. He's anything, this Asnapar was anything but noble. Historically, he had snuffed out any enemy that came his way or anything that stood in his way. This, this leader was known as a bloodthirsty tyrant. And he's trying to say, look, that's my leader. 
We're part of this great club and movement. Let's stamp out this movement in Jerusalem. Now, two temptations come up in Artaxerxes' heart through this correspondence, and you see it as the letter is played out. Begin with me in verse 11. Follow as I read. This is a copy of the letter that they sent to Artaxerxes the king. Your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, that's Euphrates, send greeting and now be it known to the king that the Jews who have come up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now look at, look at how he goes in to tap into Artaxerxes' pride here in verse 14. Now because we eat the salt of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king. Stop there. What Rehum, the commander, is doing is saying, look, because we've had some level of fellowship before, it's a reference uh, to eating the salt in the palace as a reference to perhaps coming in at a lower level in a banquet hall setting where he has enjoyed hospitality before with Artaxerxes. And he's trying to, uh, he's trying to replay that and say, listen, because we're all part of this movement together and I don't want in any way for you to be dishonored, we need to move against these people. Well, the first temptation that he taps into is this. He says they will, the Jews will threaten your wealth. They'll threaten your wealth. You say, why is that a temptation? Well, we see that temptation, by the way, in verse 13. Why is that a temptation? Well, have you ever been tempted about your money before? You ever had your personal wealth threatened? Has that ever happened? You ever had somebody rip you off or perceive that somebody was ripping you off and find yourself getting ramped up in your adrenal gland, perhaps ramping up your tone of voice with someone that is stealing from you? I remember hearing from uh, a gentleman one time who almost got in a fist fight at a 7-Eleven convenience store over one dollar. Guy miscoded the gas, and all of a sudden it nearly came to blows over one dollar. Makes you want to intervene and go, Here's a dollar, let's move on. Money. It's a great study in pride because this, this sort of uh, form of attack worked with King Artaxerxes. Now again, it's ludicrous to think that, that this is a big deal. Verse 13, they will not pay tribute custom or toll and the royal revenue will be impaired the royal revenue was 20 to 30 million dollars sort of in their money in their time and this is representing about 600,000 of it of that 20 or 30 million in Jerusalem it's 2% of the overall revenue that was to be collected that year and that collection would have been gold and silver that would have been melted down to be bullion sort of a, a pot of reserve put over to the side in no way would this impair the royal revenue it was laughable but again we're talking about money and again the new testament 
um, scripture is there. It's almost like an aphorism. The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And obviously, Artaxerxes loved his money, and it represented his power. And so Rehum is tapping into that temptation as if they were going to create tax evasion and somehow take over the western part of the Persian kingdom. Secondly, in verse 15, you see the second threat temptation, and that is that it was as if the Jews, if they built their temple and built their walls and built their city, that would threaten the security of Persia. Verse 15. Look at it again. In order that search may be made in the books of the records of your fathers, you will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from old. That was why this city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. The idea here is that if you look back in the chronicles or history, O king, you'll find kings of, you know, 500 years ago in David, Solomon, Josiah, Hezekiah, who dominated that region of Samaria and all of the province west of the Euphrates. And so once again, if you start by letting them build the temple and the walls, then they are going to take over your kingdom. Well, what temptation is being tapped into here isn't just money now it's power power what's rightfully yours right you ever struggle with that hey this is mine this is my possession and you used it and you damaged it in some way and so you're liable to me in that you're culpable right you've done me wrong we don't struggle with these temptations right you know, I, I own this area, I own this property, or this is my company that you're tampering with, and, and you're, you're, you're coming in, and, and I, I'm bothered by that. Well, that's, that's the same kind of pride battle that was sort of stirred up in the heart of Artaxerxes. That's what he's struggling with. Now, again, Jerusalem at this point is very small, and so it's laughable to think that this is going to be a threat at all in the lifetime of Artaxerxes. This, in other words, was not some world expansion takeover that's generated by temple worship. That's not what the motivation behind Israel was at all. It was never God's motivation to act that way or, or to do things in that way. But it was cast that way to hurt the movement of God. That this says in verse 15, this was why this city was laid waste. That, that's not true at all. Actually, you'll remember that Babylon came in and laid Jerusalem to the ground, burned it to the ground because they were under the chastening, chastening hand of God because they were all wrapped up in religious idolatry. That's why it happened. It wasn't that Babylon was pushing back on Jerusalem because they were world dominators. But, but again, if pride is skewing the perspective of a leader, they're not going to see things rationally. And if pride has creeped up into your heart, you're not going to see life rationally. You could be played in the battle, of, uh, battle for the glory of God and the kingdom of God. You could be played by Satan because Satan could be tempting you to be proud in this very same way. You have to be humble 
as we battle for God. You have to be humble to battle for the glory of God, right? Our battle is not against flesh and blood. We don't fight the world, the flesh, and the devil in the same way that they fight, do we? We shouldn't. You can't fight pride with pride. That only leads to destruction, to falling, to hurt, to explosions that happen all around in relationships. It's a catastrophe. Bad things happen when pride meets pride, when force of will clashes against force of will. Called to fight with the Scripture and in humility by the power of the Holy Spirit with the weapons that are not of this world, but with the truth and the gospel. Again, you find that this third attack, this third letter is answered by Artaxerxes. And the answer is found in verses 17 and following. And I want to read that to you. It just, again, shows that this attack worked because Rahum's pride played right into Artaxerxes' pride. Look at this. The king sent an answer, verse 17. To Rahum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river, greeting. And now, the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me. And I made a decree, and search has been made. And it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it, and mighty kings have been over Jerusalem who ruled over the whole province beyond the river to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease and that this city be not rebuilt until decree is made by me. Now, it worked. It worked. Artaxerxes, this world leader, has shut things down. And again, remember, this isn't talking about the early stages under Cyrus and Darius. We've moved way forward in the story under Ezra and now Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 actually talks about how these enemies took this decree even farther. They not only halted the work of God, verse 3 of chapter 1 in Nehemiah says that they destroyed or demolished the walls and burned things to the ground where everything is going to start over once again. This was very effective to stop a lot of progress. And this isn't just stopping four or five people who were doing a building project. This was stopping 50,000 plus people who were rebuilding a city. It's a big stop. And it worked. What are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to do um, in these times? You know, I, I skipped a quote early on. I don't know if it was up on the PowerPoint, but I need to read it to us. A couple quotes. First of all, the great causes of God and humanity are not defeated by the hot assaults of the devil, but the slow, crushing glacier-like mass of thousands and thousands of nobodies. G. Adam Smith. What are you supposed to do when a thousand nobodies are coming against you? What are you supposed to do? How are you supposed to persevere through this kind of battle, this attrition warfare? I'm going to read another quote. 
in this time, you have to grab on to the promises of God. And you have to rest in the sovereignty of God. This is what one person said, a commentator. He said, this is a God who does exactly what he promised. At the precise moment he promised it, and in the face of all odds, when we come to an apparent graveyard of our hopes, we need to renew our trust in a God who knows his way out of the grave. We serve a Savior who's won the battle. And God, I think, is glorified as he pushes us to the end of ourselves where we don't know which way is up. We're done. There's no solution. The enemies apparently have won. The story is all wrong. Satan wins at the, the end, right? No. We stop and we say, that's not true. We've got to find truth to find our bearings, to find out what happened 2,000 years ago where Satan's head was crushed and where Christ got that victory. And we have to see from that where we're headed, where ultimately we will be glorified when we see Jesus face to face. That's what the children of Israel needed to do. Remember in Ezra chapter 3, where they sang responsively the promise of God, where they'd been in exile for 50 years at that point, and they rebuilt the foundation of the temple. God had brought them back, and they sang, For he is good, his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. Do you have that kind of faith? I mean, you might be face down in your trials this morning. I know that many of you are. And you need to regrip and regrasp the providence of God, and the sovereignty of God. And that's our second point. How do you make it through an attrition warfare? Well, first of all, you recognize that you'll always be at war. And then secondly, you rest in the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God, the rule of God, it's sort of, there are glimmers of hope in the text that I just want to point out to you quickly. Look at verse 21. We read through this already, but you might have missed it. There is a glimmer of hope here that wakes us up to see that God is active and alive in the midst of dire and desperate and seemingly hopeless circumstances. Look at this. Artaxerxes says, Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease and that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. You see that word until? The glimmer of hope. It's a little chink in the armor to say, listen, everything's going to halt. The train's going to come to a grinding stop until, until it's reversed. This is a providential proviso that Nehemiah is going to grab onto later on and leverage to the glory of God. You know what our proviso is? You know what our provision is? Jesus Christ died on the cross. He won the victory. No matter how bleak it looks now, we know that air support is coming to rescue us out of our trench, right? We're going to make it. We're going to make it because of Christ alone. And then... We come to verse 24, just to finish off the chapter. Now, verse 24 is put there just to confuse us all, right? Because verse 24 actually takes us back in the story to verse 5. Remember, you have different kings. You have Cyrus and Darius, and then you have Ahasuerus and Artaxerxes. Well, you've fast-forwarded 100 years, and then verse 24 brings us back 
to the chronology of the story under Darius. So it's kind of going back in time here in verse 24. Back to when the, in the early stage the foundation had been built and had been halted and stopped at that early stage. Verse 24, then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped. Talking about that early stage when it stopped. It's going to stop later on. Verse 12 says the walls are going to be destroyed later on. This is an attrition warfare. And so Ezra is giving the big picture in a hundred year snapshot. But then he goes all the way back in verse 24 to that early stage when the progress was stopped. When they had been bullied to stop early on. But there's hope. And it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. It stopped until, there's that word again. You see that? It's great. It's repeated until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And the point is, the work gets stopped along the way, you know, three steps forward, two steps back, but God's kingdom is being built nevertheless. And it's going to keep going that way. You start, you get blocked, and you just keep persevering. What does Revelation say? It says those who overcome, the overcomers are the ones who enter into the kingdom of God. That's a Christian. A Christian's a marathon runner. A Christian's a fighter. A Christian's the one who keeps on keeping on no matter what. You're called not to quit, but to persevere all the way to the finish line. And that's the point here. And next week we're going to see the third point where Haggai and Zechariah are preaching this for the church of the Old Testament to persevere and keep going. Let's just look at a few applications. And I would ask you to bow your head as I talk through these real quickly. Number one, are you in denial of spiritual warfare or are you facing an enemy that's committed to sideline your effectiveness? You know, we better accept it that we're at war and we need to battle against a foe that's not just maneuvering against us, trying to trick us, but is trying to suffocate us and poison us with the world and lull us to sleep. Second, are you reinforcing yourself with spiritual friendships that will see you through a long war? My advice to you and counsel is that you fortify yourselves with friendships. People you can call, whether here or elsewhere around the world, that you know will be a source of encouragement. You're not called to battle through this battle alone. We're not involved in special forces warfare. We are part of a large army together, and we're called to lock arms and do that. So I would encourage you, have regular contact with believers who will encourage you. Number three, are you able to place yourself in the story of redemptive history and see the end and outcome of the war? Do you see the proviso of Christ 2,000 years ago, the provision that looks forward to the ultimate glorification where we are brought into glory with no more sin, no more sickness, no more Satan, no more death, no more demons? Number four, are you fighting? And this, this sort of opens up that layer of study on pride. Are you fighting the sin of pride in your life? This is an internal battle. We do fight against things externally, but there is an internal battle that we are rescued from and we're forgiven from, but we still deal with the effects of pride in our lives and we can relate to Rahum and we can relate to Artaxerxes where they fell into that atmosphere of pride together. It's important to remember how dangerous and debilitating pride is for all Christians. 
Let me just remind us, pride comes before the fall. In 1 Corinthians 10, 12, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together. We thank you that, Lord, this is a sobering word from the text. We know that, God, we are in a battle, but, God, we know that we will be victorious. And I pray that we would have joy in our hearts with the sobriety of war and that we would live for you, for your honor and your namesake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.